and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm going to do a solo episode and I'm going to talk to you about neurobiology and eating disorders. So before I launch in today, I just want to say a massive, massive, massive thank you to everyone who listens and supports this podcast. I literally started this podcast in 2020 on my iPhone and I think for the initial first episode back in February of 2020, I think about 10 people listened and we are almost at a million downloads, which is incredible. Hoping to make a million downloads, make a million downloads by the beginning of December this year. So thank you so much to everybody who is listening and thank you so much to all the incredible guests who have been on the show. I really feel like I am a kind of channel for this podcast. I feel like people approach me all the time. They want to be on it. They want to really give, tell their story, share their tips and expertise. And I feel like I'm just kind of like this middle person who is bringing these people together. But really the podcast has become so much more than me. So thank you so much to everyone. I massively, massively appreciate every one of you listeners. And if you've been a guest as well, I appreciate you massively giving up your time and energy and wisdom. So neurobiology and eating disorders, something I haven't really talked much about on the podcast before. So I just want to credit as well the Centre for Clinical Interventions in Australia for some of this content. Now, I will try and remember to put a link to their website in the show notes, but I just want to say that the Centre for Clinical Interventions in Australia, they produce some really great information around mental health. It's not just around eating disorders, it's about all kinds of things like anxiety, depression, self-esteem, and the resources are free. And that's just amazing. I mean, there's not that much amazing content like that that is free and available to everyone. So really big shout out to them. I'm really, really, really grateful for all their information they put out there. So eating disorders, they're severe mental health illnesses with the potential for serious medical consequences. And there's more scientific evidence coming out, which is helping us to understand the neurobiology of these disorders better so we can support people better in recovery. So what do we mean by neurobiology? So neurobiology is a scientific field in which researchers study the nervous system and brain function. Okay, and I think what's really helpful is the more research that is coming out, we realize that eating disorders are pretty complex. Okay, it's not that it's down to, they're down to one genetic thing or down to one environmental thing. There's lots of things coming together, but because of we're getting more and more research, particularly in the field of neurobiology, we're starting to understand things better. So who's to blame for eating disorders? <laughs> no one individual, I would say. People with eating disorders and their loved ones often can really wonder how an eating disorder has developed. They be can become very self-blaming, but science can help bust these harmful myths and improve our understanding of the complexity of these disorders. And through research, we've come to understand that there's really no single cause of eating disorders. For example, you don't have to have had some kind of psychological problem or trauma 
Although we do know as well that many people who develop eating disorders will have experienced some kind of psychological trauma or trigger. So again, it's quite complex. What's very interesting, I think, as well, is how certain in certain families, siblings can experience quite similar environmental stresses, and you could argue maybe similar genetics, but they may respond very differently with their mental well-being. Now, I know for myself, I am one of four siblings. You know, obviously, each of us, each myself and my siblings, each of our experiences has been unique in terms of what we've experienced growing up. We're not all being put through exactly the same kind of external kind of influences. We're all slightly different as well in our genetics. But what's really interesting is, I guess, you know, with the four of us, we're very, very different. We're very different in how we struggled with our mental health. We're very struggled in terms, we're very different in how we sort of perceive things, how we interpret things. Um, you know, maybe where one person has been more drawn towards an eating disorder, another person to addiction. Some of us are more anxious than the others or suffering more with low mood. It's really, really variable. So certainly if any individual has experienced trauma, abuse, adverse childhood events, you know, your self-worth and your ability to regulate your emotions, the development of your nervous system, it's all, all going to make you probably a bit more vulnerable with your mental health. But for some people that might be experiencing an eating disorder, for others it could be an addiction with drugs or alcohol, it could be suffering with depression or anxiety or something else. It's really quite complex. Now what's very interesting as well, it is very common for eating disorders to develop after a period of calorie restriction, dieting, or an adequate nutritional intake. So it can be through the more kind of conventional kind of dieting, extreme, you know, nutrition things that we see out in the world. But also as well, if someone perhaps has not been fed properly as a child, you know, because of poverty, because they've had a parent or something struggling with addiction, then they're gonna be more vulnerable maybe with their relationship with food. But again, you know, in different families, one individual, one sibling may be more vulnerable to that than another. So it's really, really quite complex. So the role of genetics in eating disorders. So mood, your temperament, whether you're a glass half full or empty person, whether you're more prone to anxiety or you're more easygoing, depending on how your impulse regulation is, as well as your appetite, your body shape, and your metabolism, all these things have a strong genetic basis. So i.e. they can be inherited. So you may look at the body shape of your parents, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, and see those sort of heritable trends. So approximately about half the risk of developing an eating disorder could come from genetic influence. But again, this risk differs from person to person. Now, what's very interesting as well is this point can be illustrated through research by Dr. Thomas Boyce, an emeritus professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. So he has treated children. So he's, his research is not focused on eating disorders, but it's looking at kind of children and their sensitivity, okay? So he's treated children who seem to be completely perhaps unflappable, unfazed by their surroundings, as well as children who perhaps are extremely sensitive to their environments. So, and over the years, he's began to liken these two types of children to two very different flowers. So he calls them dandelions and orchids. So you may have heard of this, and broadly speaking, Boyce says, 
and he spent nearly 40 years studying the human stress response, especially in children. Most children tend to be like dandelions, so they're more resilient, they're able to cope with stress and adversity in their lives. But some children are what he calls orchid children, and these children are more sensitive and biologically reactive to their circumstances, which makes it harder for them to deal with stressful situations. So what's quite interesting as well is I guess that people with a higher heritability might need only a slightly toxic environment for an eating disorder to manifest itself, while in a protective environment, they may not go on to develop an eating disorder. So say for example, if someone is genetically more anxious, more perfectionistic, more sensitive, maybe more orchid type personalities, they're then exposed to triggers in their environment which are very stressful. So it could be, you know, I'm thinking the world today, it could be the pandemic. It could be a very high pressure academic environment. It could be pressure from peers maybe um, to be thin. You know, in those environments, they could be much more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Whereas someone, you know, a similar child in that situation who has a thicker skin that we might call them a dandelion child, they may be less impacted. So obviously as well, it's a lot more complex. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's probably quite hard sometimes to identify is someone more of a dandelion and an orchid. I think what's really important to say as well here is that people who are more orchid type children as well have a lot of strengths you know real kind of empathy intuition kindness an ability to kind of tune into others emotions as well so they have a lot of those kind of superpowers and not to say as well that dandelion children don't have those strengths as well but you can see it's a bit more complex so let's talk now a little bit about epigenetics so epigenetics is a study of biological mechanisms that cause our underlying genetic predispositions to be switched on or switched off. So in certain environments, especially where there's a lot of stress and or inadequate nutrition, the risk could be higher for an eating disorder because the genes might get switched on. Now, an international eating disorders expert Professor Cynthia Bulick explains, I hope I said her surname correctly, genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So just repeat that, genes load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. Now I have seen with some of my own clients, perhaps where they've been underfed in childhood due to poverty, due to addiction in the family, where children weren't fed properly because of, you know, parents were really struggling, maybe spending money on drugs and alcohol, etc the child then isn't adequately nourished, used to being very, very hungry as a child, and then this understandably can absolutely impact their later relationship with food and could possibly make them more vulnerable to an eating disorder. Another example is maybe someone who is born in a larger body, you know, they're taller, they're bigger boned, they're more muscular. So they may just naturally be predisposed to carrying more weight as understandably they have a bigger frame and this is absolutely healthy for them. But then they're in a society where they're shamed or made to feel wrong about their body in their environment. So then they engage in extreme dieting, they might develop binge eating and then have a problem in kind of managing weight because of all those environmental triggers and they're sort of developing an eating disorder maybe from very, very young, you know, because of their 
to genetic predisposition to being in a larger body, but then actually the problem is the environment, nothing to do with their body being wrong, that sets them off down that unhelpful track. And I think there are many, many, many people in our society that fall into that category, and it is incredibly sad. So the gene-environment interaction. So Western culture places an extremely high value on thinness and muscularity, and many people then engage in dieting or excessive exercise to become thinner or more muscular. And the pursuit of these physiques is toxically often seen as a morally good thing to do. If you're thinner or more muscular, you might be seen as having more discipline, self-control and willpower. Now, again, you know, for some people in society, if they dabble a bit in dieting, these behaviours may not be so harmful. And also, if you're someone who's born with thin privilege, you know, your body is probably not that far off the ideal anyway. So you might dabble in dieting, um, but ultimately, ultimately, your body kind of fits the kind of effed up ideal anyway. So you're probably less likely to be sort of driven to go to an extreme. For some people, dieting as well doesn't seem to turn on their genes in the way where they're really triggered with an eat to sort of develop an eating disorder. So they can diet, they can dabble in dieting, but it doesn't turn on their genes. You know, they can almost kind of stick their toe in the eating disorder behavior landscape, but it doesn't become an, a sort of an entrenched thing, trigger the gene response so they develop an eating disorder. In another scenario, two individuals might lose weight, maybe due to a bereavement or a life stressor. You know, I think many people, when they go through a period of extreme stress, they might lose weight, not because they want to lose weight, because they are so, you know, um, grief-stricken and really, really struggling. So whereas one person may naturally regain the lost weight with no long-term consequences, the other person might develop an eating disorder, you know, because of that weight loss, um, the, gene, the genes have been triggered, so they're going on to develop an eating disorder. And we know that inadequate nutrition serves as the catalyst for the expression of an eating disorder. Um, yes, yeah, serves as the catalyst, sorry, for the expression of an underlying genetic vulnerability. So it opens the door, doesn't it, to a lot of thoughts around prevention of eating disorders. You know, if we could banish poverty and all children could be fed adequately, if we could banish extreme dieting, both of these would have a profound effect on the incidence of eating disorders. Okay, so it's a thought, isn't it? I know there's a lot, <laughs> a lot would need to change for those things to happen, but it just shows, you know, we could have such a profound impact if we could alter those things. So let's talk a bit about the brain and eating disorders. So some people worry that eating disorders are caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, but officially there is no evidence for this. However, research has shown that brain activity can be affected by even modest dieting, and a young person's developing brain is particularly vulnerable. So when a person is malnourished, their brain's not adequately fueled, and this may mean they struggle to make decisions, to solve problems, to regulate their emotions, and they could experience symptoms we might associate with what we call starvation syndrome. And they may also experience perceptual disturbances in the way they see themselves. For example, looking in the mirror and seeing themselves as much larger than they actually are. And although eating disorders aren't caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, restricted eating, malnourishment, and excessive weight loss can result in problematic changes to our brain chemistry. For example, the brain produces less serotonin, 
which results in increased symptoms of depression. So what does this all mean for eating disorder recovery? So the good news is that the effects of starvation can be reversed with adequate renourishment. And brain imaging studies show that brain activity in people with eating disorders can change. The brain is like a muscle. It's constantly changing and adapting as a result of our environment, how it is used or kind of exercised. So it can be exercised through learning and practicing new ways of thinking and interacting with others. We can lay down new neural pathways, ways of thinking with practice. People with improved sort of recovery in eating disorders show brain activity that looks more like that of people who have never had an eating disorder. But you might need to have a lot of practice and repetition here. Because if you've been using your brain to count calories, obsess over the weighing scales, plan out your food for days on end, you're going to have to learn to look at things differently. But it's no different from perhaps learning a new language or a subject matter. We can change as humans. We can have a growth mindset. So you can train your brain to think and process differently. And it does need a lot of repetition with this. And I think in my own life, the evidence that I have of how my brain thinks very differently from how it did say even a decade ago. You know, I remember in the past, I would be a lot more self-critical. I would be a lot more obsessed around food. I would often be very overwhelmed by my emotions and this would train, this would trigger even very negative patterns of thought. And I've trained my brain to think about things very, very differently today, okay? And it's taken a lot of practice and repetition, but it's absolutely possible. I would say that the way I think is almost quite unrecognizable, particularly from if you went back to two decade, decades, I'd be a very, very different person. So the brain as well needs to be adequately nourished in order to make these challenging changes. You know, a starved brain won't function optimally, optimally, so the first priority in treatment is always nutritional rehabilitation. The benefit of psychological therapy can be more limited as well if you're undernourished. You just can't kind of do that work when you're in that kind of very sort of rigid, preoccupied with food place, and you can't think and process in a healthy way. So. Of course, this is challenging as increasing food intake can be scary for someone with an eating disorder. And also the brain tends to lag behind the body in terms of recovery. And it can take time for people recovering from an eating disorder for their brain to catch up when they regain their capacity for abstract reasoning and rational thinking. You know, I think as well, particularly around body image, there's often really a lag time and this can be really challenging for people. And you know, we know from the Minnesota starvation study that the men really struggled with their body image when they were refed. And this wasn't in the image obsessed society that we live in today. So you can see as well around body image, already it's gonna be challenging, but in the social media ridden obsessed society that we live in, it is even more challenging. So of course, the challenge we face in our society in eating disorder recovery is a massively triggering environment with images of unachievable bodies that are inaccurate, airbrushed, etc. Conflicting messages about diets and exercise, they're ever present. So therapy and support not only needs to address a person's genetic vulnerabilities, but also to help them develop skills to manage their environmental influences. So managing stress, avoiding dieting, this stuff is hard. 
And in some environments as well, if you're in entertainment, in modeling, in dance, some sports, you're going to be more vulnerable and you may need to really reflect on your career choice, your hobby choice, and the impact on your well-being. You know, sometimes we have to be quite radical if something is particularly triggering for us. Potentially though, if you recover from an eating disorder, you're likely to have a better relationship with food and body than the average person in the culture because you've done the work, you have the awareness, you have challenged and called out the BS in society. So I want to finish with just saying that recovery from an eating disorder is possible with adequate renourishment and learning, the brain and body can return to healthy functioning. So adequate nutritional intake and supportive environments are both helpful here. Therapy can be really valuable, things like cognitive behavior therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, compassion-focused therapy, motivational enhancement therapy, more traditional psychotherapy, alongside the nutritional rehabilitation, all really, really important. And this will promote thriving across all your life domains. You know, eating disorder recovery, it allows you to reconnect with your values, with yourself, you know, to really get much more into that authentic place where you can be free and find your purpose and enjoy life. So if you're struggling today, don't give up, okay? Um, we do not have to be a slave to our genes. Um, we are all complex. We have a complex mix of our genes and our environment that are impacting, you know, perhaps how we developed an eating disorder, how we're managing our mental health overall. But I think whether you are a more of an orchid or a dandelion or however you may kind of want to sort of like understand yourself, there are strengths and weaknesses that come from both, okay? And it's possible to recover in whatever situation you're in. But if you recognize maybe that you have dieted extremely for a long time, maybe you recognize that you're you were not fed adequately in childhood, you, you've got to be really compassionate with yourself and realize that of course this is going to have impacted your relationship with food and just to be really kind to yourself about all of this. Okay, so I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're not following me already on Instagram, do seek me out the eating disorder therapist underscore. For further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. <laughs> if you are a nutritionist, personal trainer, counselor, therapist, and you want to learn more about supporting your clients with body image, I'm running some training on Zoom, Saturday the 18th of November. Do get in touch with me, harriet.frew at gmail.com, 99 pounds for the training day with a very comprehensive training manual that comes with it. It's, these days are always really, really brilliant. People get so much value. You really learn a lot of practical skills on how to support your clients. You might also be interested to take part in my 10 steps to intuitive eating online course. This is made up of video and lecture content to really help you heal your relationship with food. And maybe if you're potentially interested in working with me one-to-one um, -one in the future, you might want to do my course as a sort of dipping your toe in the water to see if you kind of like my style of therapy and if it relates to you. And it is only, I think it's 49.99 at the moment, there's 50% off with the code freedom is possible. So yeah, do sign up. It's great value. There's so much packed in there. I really do share so many of my skills and strategies. So thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast as well, I would be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. So thanks again. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.